Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Dave Opar, Anthony Shield, Matt Taberner, Lachlan Wilmot, and Ben Ashworth. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So we've got coming up a injury, hamstring injury masterclass featuring five unbelievable guys, both researchers and practitioners, some both. Um, so coming up, we've got audio clips from episode 73 with Dave Opar, uh, 141 with Anthony Shield, 150 with Matt Taberner, 185 with Lachlan Wilmot, and 125 with Ben Ashworth. So as you can imagine, the focus of this conversation and multiple conversations was around the Nordic hamstring exercise, given it's the amount of research that's out there, but also it's controversy in the discussions that people have all over the country, all over the world. So some great, really great discussions coming from the guys, from strategies out there in the field that's employed at uh, NRL clubs with Lachlan Wilmot to Premier League clubs with Everton, at Matt Taberner and Arsenal with Ben Ashworth to the research behind it where and when hamstrings occur hamstring injuries occur sorry with Dave and Tony so some fantastic uh, some fantastic information that I've pulled from the various different podcasts so I'd encourage you to go back and and, and re-listen to them because they are superb episodes uh, I know I've picked a lot from the Tony Shield episode but I think I could have just probably slotted that in the whole thing in somewhere and uh, I know people would get loads of value from it. So head over to each of the podcasts and I hope you enjoy this mashup and this uh, hamstring injury masterclass. But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard of Vald Performance, they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the Groin Bar, and the all new Human Track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdperformance.com. Uh, I'll follow them on Twitter at ValPerformance. So their all-new Human Track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So Human Track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results, with some more to come, which will be openly available via the Valve Performance website when they do become available. So if you, like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit valdeperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at Performance. Also sponsoring this episode today is Force Dex. So big thanks to Force Dex for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit forcedex.com, but also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com forward slash 139, where co-owner of Forstec, Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. Um, it's certainly not a sales pitch for Forstex, but you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of Forstex uh, as re- with regards to the, the software. So if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. So without further ado, here is the episode with Dave Opar, Anthony Shield, Matt Taberner, Ben Ashworth, and Lachlan Wilmot. So first up in this hamstring injury masterclass, we have Dr. David Opar from episode 73, just discussing uh, and giving us a bit of an overview of when and where hamstring injuries occur, which is good base for us to jump off from in this masterclass. So just bear in mind, this is over two years ago, so some of the research that Dave mentions or anyone mentioned this episode has, has moved on from them, obviously, in over two years. So just keep that in mind while you're, uh, while you're listening to this. But it gives a real nice uh, base for us to jump off from. So episode 73, over to Dr. David Opar. I mean, so from a, from a mechanistic perspective, it's, it's probably most likely that 
hamstring strains occur. Well, we know that they occur most often during high-speed running, um, and it's probably most likely in the, the terminal swing phase of high-speed running as well. Uh, and you've got to, you know, the hip is flexed and the, and the knee's rapidly extending, um, so you have a combination of high levels of, of muscle force or activation uh, at, at moderate lengths um, whilst the muscle is lengthening. And so it's probably a combination of those things tied into a relatively rapid lengthening contraction that is probably the recipe for hamstring strain injuries. Um, now, that said, uh, whilst it's an injury that is seen as occurring acutely, there's probably a whole host of factors in the lead-up to when an injury occurs that actually leaves an athlete vulnerable to injury. Um, and then once they're in a vulnerable state, then they have to be met with all the right conditions and so on and so forth. So I think it's an important, distinguish or important thing to distinguish is that they happen acutely and, as I say, most likely during high-speed running, during terminal swing. Um, but it's also the lead-up of events to that point in time as well that probably puts an athlete at risk. And, and some of the um, low monitoring work that we've either completed recently or in the midst of completing suggests that there's perhaps a, a two-week window that, you know, a rolling two-week window that seems to be pretty important for hamstring injuries specifically uh, in terms of identifying the, the risk and the contribution of risk that load might play. Mm -hmm. So, so when you when you mention that, what is how are you determining that that risk in the in the two weeks leading up to it? Okay, so we've had uh, a couple of studies again, the, the big AFL one, which I spoke about mm -hmm. um, earlier, and then a, a preceding study to that run by um, Steve Dewey up in Queensland and Morgan Williams, who's at the University of South Wales, uh, which has looked at data from a single AFL club across two seasons, um, and so we're able to look at you know, pretty large masses of data uh, and then also get injury reports to see when players go on to sustain a hamstring injury. And so we're able to look at what are some of the common features and factors that we see in those that go on to be injured and those who avoid injury as well. Um, and as I say, we're still working through some of that data, but the thing that is emerging out of that is it's perhaps not necessarily, you know, a four-week window or an acute to chronic workload ratio um, that might fit specifically for the hamstring injury, um, but it might be more of a two-week window or your week-to-week -week change in load that is particularly important for, for hammies. Mm -hmm. So it's that spiking in training load that you mm. see? Yeah, I, like, I think that would be probably the, the, the best way to describe it. Um, particularly Steve's work would suggest that, that it's really trying to identify the spikes and then work out, you know, what the latent period is from that spike in workload and how long your risk might be elevated. Um, but then also the week-to-week -week change stuff tells us that, you know, your baseline or perhaps your, your chronic workload isn't as, as long as what might be the, the typical four-week window as well. So it seems like there's shorter time frames and, and the spike can be particularly damaging within that window. So this second audio clip also comes from Dr. David Opar in episode 73 and just looks at the current trends of hamstring injury prevention and what's going out on, on out there in the field from Dave's experience going to visit many, many clubs and advising on uh, hamstring injury prevention. So again, over to Dave. Look, I mean, even you know, not, not just from seeing it um, up close, but also the published literature, you know, the UEFA studies will tell us uh, the recent ones from Extrand and his colleagues have suggested that the rates of injuries in professional European soccer uh, are not going down. If anything, they're, they're trending slightly upwards. Um, and we see a, a similar thing here in the Australian Football League, uh, in the AFL, um, which is Australian rules football, uh, where the, the rates of hamstring injuries, first-time injuries, aren't necessarily regressing downwards. Now, the, the caveat to that is that uh, at least in the AFL, it seems like the rate of recurrence is trending downwards over the last number of years. Um, so it still seems like identifying those at risk and implementing some of the best preventative strategies is still something that's either eluding us from a scientific perspective or the application and implementation of that is, is something that's quite difficult in the implied environment. But it's no doubt you know, still an issue and still something that a lot of people, including us, are grappling with.
So so new in, new hamstring injuries are going up, but recurrence is going down. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I, look, that's the, the that's the AFL data. Okay. So it looks like recurrences over the last probably ten or so years now are trending downwards. Um, but it doesn't really seem to be much of a change in first time injuries. So they're either remaining relatively constant, uh, or as I say, with the UI, UEFA data suggests that they might be trending slightly upwards. So so why is that? Do you think? Uh, there's a, a heap of possible explanations, and to identify the, the root cause for a problem that's been around for so long is really, really difficult. Um, I think what we've got with uh, developing scientific understanding and evidence bases, that's being probably matched with an increase in the demands of the game where hamstring injuries are, are most prevalent. And so whilst we're learning a lot of new stuff and hopefully implementing some new things as well, what's being asked of the players whether it's from intensity within games or shorter turnarounds between games and less recovery, the combination of those factors tend to have largely offset. So whilst practice is probably getting better, um, we're also then getting athletes having to do more as well. And so it might be you know, a constant ongoing battle that's never resolved. It's a little bit like going to, to any place of work you have risk of injury inherent to that job, and it might be that for, for footballers or athletes in running-based sports, that risk of hamstring injury is always there, um, and it's that, that balance between you know, what can we do to prevent compared to how much um, you know, we need to maximise and optimise performance as well, and, and they sometimes tend to chide against each other, um, but you know, in the ideal world, your preventative strategy should aid performance as well. So this next audio clip comes from Tony Shield in episode 141. So this builds on Dave's first uh, first audio clip in what we know about hamstring injuries. So I thought it was, I thought it was good to get these couple in uh, first of all to kind of set the scene for the rest of the uh, masterclass. So over to Tony Shield from episode 141. Sure. So I think the one thing that we would all agree on is that we just don't know enough. If we if we really knew how to control hamstring strain injuries, or we could all agree to it at least, we would obviously be seeing some significant reductions in injury rates. But all the stats tend to suggest that there's, if, if in some competitions like the AFL here in Australia, it seems like there's a very, very small drop-off in the number reported per club per season. And there's a few different potential explanations for that. But in UEFA soccer, you know, there's that... Really nice study, Jan Ekstrand and his group, and apologies, I just forgot who the first author is, but anyway, I think it might be Jan, and the injury rate's going up between 2 and 4% a year. Um, and so we all um, recognise that we don't know enough. And I think the other thing we definitely know about hamstring injuries is that there's an enormous amount of disagreement as to how we might best actually contribute to, to reversing those trends. Um, what we as a research group have, have concentrated on, we, we basically got, I listed them earlier today, we've about five different research areas that we've uh, had a dabble in or are, are continuing to work in. I think over time, and now Matthew Bourne's PhD work, uh, and you've had Matthew Bourne on your show, um, he's described quite nicely the architectural and the morphological changes in the hamstrings as a consequence of at least two different hamstring exercises, and he actually has a, a third paper um, in review at the moment looking at a, um, a supine bridge exercise and the short-term uh, muscle activation of the, of the bridge. Uh, Ryan Timmons uh, doing his PhD with Dave Opar, you know, one of the most productive and really one of the great um, PhDs in hamstring injury research. Um, he showed the effect of contraction mode on hamstring um, adaptation. So <clears throat> he compared concentric and eccentric dynamometry training and showed that the eccentric training lengthened fascicles and the concentric training shortened fascicles, despite the fact that that um, concentric training happened at, at long hamstring lengths. So we know now a little bit more about the impact of exercise selection on some of these adaptations that are useful, not just on architecture, but Matty Bourne's work looked at muscle size as well, where we compared 
uh, hypertrophic adaptations to Nordics versus a 45 degree hip extension. Um, we've also been ex you know, examining in the past, the pr you know, prospectively, uh, we've looked at the role of eccentric knee flexor strength and AFL in A-League soccer, which is our top level soccer here in Australia for men, and also in rugby. And Ryan's work again uh, added something very nice in that he looked at bicep femoris long head fascicle lengths prospectively and players with short fascicles were more likely to get injured and players with low levels of eccentric strength in the soccer and the AFL studies were also more likely to get injured. And what we were particularly interested in there was the interaction between those um, variables that you can do something about. Uh, obviously, fascicle length is highly trainable and strength is highly trainable. And they interact uh, quite significantly with age and prior injury history so that if you're 18 years old and you've never had an injury, it probably doesn't matter really how strong you are. Basically, according to our AFL study, you're very unlikely to get injured. But if you're 28 and you are weak, then you have a problem. And if you're 28 and you have a prior history of injury, then you have an even bigger problem. And it seems that for these more mature athletes, um, being strong and having long fascicles is of, you know, immense value. Um, we're also been interested in the associations between high-speed running variables and hamstring injuries. And so Steve Dewig, for example, from QUT, uh, had that BJSM paper uh, come out uh, some stage last year where we – it's obviously just observational stuff, but we were able to show that a vast majority of the hamstring injuries that occurred occurred in the midst of a high-speed running load spike. And prior to that, Obviously, load spikes had been associated with elevated injury risk, but this was the first one, first study to show that it was um, that hamstrings were also um, at more uh, risk as a consequence of uh, high-speed running volumes over the previous one to four weeks. Um, another contribution that that our groups made is the looking at the role of neuromuscular inhibition in hamstring injury recurrence. And we know that once you get a hamstring injury, they uh, come back more frequently than we'd like. And I think over time, even though we've made a little bit of progress in reducing hamstring injury recurrence rates, certainly here in the AFL, the recurrence rates have gone down over the last decade or so. Um, we still probably don't have the perfect rehab. And I think we need to address better the neuromuscular inhibition and I think once we can address neuromuscular inhibition better we will probably have a, another improvement in in hamstring recurrence rates and then I suppose one of the final things that we've been interested in is the effects of fatigue on hamstring function and I think we all understand that someone might have great hamstring strength at the start of a match and then two-thirds of the way through the the game um, perhaps their hamstring strength isn't so great We've done a little bit of work in the past to show that some people lose a lot of eccentric strength as a consequence of repeated sprinting, and other people don't lose so much, and we don't really understand exactly why that's the case. But we do have a couple of studies, one with repeated sprinting that Ryan Timmons did as a part of his honours work at QUT some years ago, and we basically showed that there was a reduction particularly in eccentric strength, and it was associated with a loss of or a reduction in bicep fem uh, surface EMG whereas the medial hamstring surface EMG uh, didn't seem to decline and certainly wasn't associated with the extent of strength loss. So more recently than that, Steve Dewig did an analogous study with kicking where he had players, athletes in AFL, kick 100 drop punt kicks, which is the he had them kick a ball into a net as hard as they could with minimal rest in between the kicks. And he showed some significant reductions in strength, eccentrically again, but also um, bicep femoris and medial hamstring activation dropped. But the extent of the strength loss was again associated with the loss of bicep femoris activation and not associated with the loss of medial hamstring activation. So I think there's something interesting going on there, but to be frank, I really don't have a clue what it is yet. So in this next audio clip, we're coming back to Dave Opar. 
and we get chatting about Nordics, which is clearly something that has come up many, many times in the podcast. So in this little audio clip, Dave discusses um, why not Nordics and the problems that people seem to have with uh, out there in the field with doing Nordics and some potential resolutions for those people that, that question Nordics and, and their effectiveness. So over to Dave. That's a very good question. Uh, it's a little bit counterintuitive, I think, that there's a, a, a task and exercise that has you know, a pretty strong body of evidence to support its use. Uh, yet it seems like when more and more and more supportive evidence comes out, then people are looking for more and more reasons to doubt that evidence. And so, at least from my perspective, that doesn't really make a hell of a lot of sense. I think you've certainly got to look at the evidence base and suggest that the exercise does work and does have preventative benefits. Uh, if you don't like the exercise, that's fine, but you need to come up with a, a, a rationale as to why. Uh, and the common um, reasons you often hear is that it's single joint, it's only a knee dominant exercise. It involves slow speed, uh, slow velocity contraction of the knee flexors, and, and all these things aren't specific to what is the proposed injury mechanism. And so I think in response to those type of comments, I think you A, just point to the fact that there's two large scale RCTs that have shown that it's got a preventative effect. But we're also now starting to observe a few more of the, the secondary benefits as well. Um, so Matt Bourne from the, the Queensland arm of the group uh, is just wrapping up an intervention study um, which has found that the, the Nordic is a, a potent stimulus for increasing biceps femoris fascicle lengths. Um, and, and one of our PhD students down here in Melbourne has shown that having short biceps femoris fascicles uh, increases the risk of injury in professional soccer players um, three to Fold. So I think the, the controversy comes about because uh, people have a bit of a fixed viewpoint about you know, their opinion or perhaps some of their biases, um, but I think it's just the evidence now is mounting so strongly, both direct evidence and indirect evidence. And so I think people can come up with limitations for the exercise, but ultimately um, it, it does what it's designed to do and it probably does that by a number of different mechanisms. But you're always going to encounter people who tell you that the exercise isn't functional. Uh, and I think from our perspective, we see it as much more of a structural exercise. It's going to change structural features within the hamstring muscle group that ultimately should have a downstream effect on your risk of injury. Now, just because it's not specific to the injury mechanism doesn't mean it can't have some of those effects. Mm-hmm. So these people that are... Um hammering the Nordics, what, what, what alternative are they offering? Um, if they're not going to do Nordics, are they, are they saying this should be better or that should be better or just saying, you know, I'm not doing Nordics because X, Y and Z? Yeah, I think that, that differs across, across the board. Uh, I, I think one thing to say uh, early on as well is that there are a lot of different exercises that I think will ultimately achieve very similar adaptation or adaptive responses as you might get from a Nordic. Nordic's beneficial because you can do it in the field uh, and, you know, you can do it partner-assisted. So for large squads and groups of athletes where you have uh, very little time available, it works well. But things like uh, Romanian deadlifts, uh, back extension, single leg back extensions and, and variations around those, and certainly think they're really viable alternative exercises as well. And, you wouldn't just use one exercise to try and prevent what is a really, really prevalent injury. But I think that the alternatives that people suggest, I think some have some real validity to them as well, just from a first principles approach. Um, and again, calling on some of Carl's work, which is a great body of evidence now, Carl Askling's, that eccentric strength at long muscle length is really, really important. And I think exercises that allow you to do that perhaps better than a Nordic, like your RDL or your back extension, is, is particularly important to consider at least its inclusion. Um, and then obviously the other one, which I don't think anyone is, is opposed to, is that you need to be able to periodize and manage your, your high-speed running loads as well. Um, so whilst it's the exercise that puts you at risk of injury, ultimately it's a, a pretty important task for performance as well. Um, and so I think well-periodized and well-planned and structured high-speed running and exposure to high-speed running is, is important too. So I think there's a, 
whole range of philosophies that, that people have. I think some of them are, are supported by direct or indirect evidence and others where people are, are just going with a little bit of gut feel. And I think the general consensus is now more and more people starting to put more faith in evidence-based practice than, than just um, gut feel or, or individual biases. So in this next audio clip, I speak to Ben Ashworth, who talks about some of the, some of the problems uh, he faced at Arsenal with getting people, getting the athletes to do Nordics, and how he was integrating the Nord board to get buy-in from the athletes to, uh, to do their Nordics on a, on a regular basis. So over to this episode with Ben, who featured in episode 125. Yeah, so... I mean, the initial thing, when you come back to sort of injury prevention and return to play protocols, it sort of starts with understanding the extent of the problem. And in football, hamstring injuries are, are rife, you know, across uh, the high frequency of hamstring injuries, as, as the uh, UEFA studies would suggest. So if you're looking at trying to be objective, and that's something that I'm, you know, you, you'll, you'll see from the rest of this discussion, I'm sure, is I'm... I like to use facts to support my decisions. And the, the Nordboard group were on their, uh, one of their early sort of visits to the UK. They, they came and did a workshop for us and it made a lot of sense. And at the time, they weren't due to uh, build a, a Nordboard until a release, release date that would have meant that we missed out on pre-season testing. And I just got on the phone and uh, used, my, used my position to try and leverage uh well not my position but the, the you know the profile of the of the sport really in the club to try and leverage a, an opportunity to get a, a, a prototype and it, we made it happen and then we were able to get some pre-season data which is really interesting and the way we use it and the way i use it is um, around monitoring so not so much for you know and, and my role is my role is a physio so i'm not the snc coach I'm not prescribing in the gym in that respect. So we use it to say, okay, what's their test like at the beginning of preseason? What's their test like at the end of preseason? And then those people that show up strong or weak, um, you know, we, we can put them into at-risk groups. And then we can use some of those non-modifiable risk, so-called non-modifiable risk factors again to look at those people who are in the high-risk groups. And then we can look at symmetry as well as the other sort of modifiable risk factor. And the guys that fall into those at-risk groups will try and have a look at them when they're doing their posterior chain loading. And the rest, well, you know, we won't make them do Nordboard exercises as part of their normal training. We're happy to do a balanced program that covers all aspects you'd expect for lower body strength. But then we will, when we get a chance, retest them. And that's how it fits in with us, and that's the way we use it. So, was was Sona Sophia from you guys? I think as a, as, a, you, as a staff, I think you're always concerned about bringing in um, bringing in something which may add stress to an, an area that's supposedly at, at a higher risk, and. You know, with with that, there's a clear philosophy from uh, from our team around the stages, stages and the progressions that you need to go through before you are able to do Nordic hamstring exercises and do them properly and do them well. So, you know, there's different levels. We do uh, some sliders. We progress through and look at single leg sliders, and then once once we believe they're strong enough, they can cope. Then we'd look at that on-pitch Nordic as part of their hamstring injury prevention. Um, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And so the soreness stuff is around, again, that kind of how used to doing that exercise are they? And there's some people who aren't made to go on the Nord boards, and that might be not so much about their physical capacity. It might be about their <laughs> lack of willingness to uh, perform what essentially is a brake test. You know, we're not talking about a monitoring tool that looks at building up to your maximum, a make test. We're looking at, okay, physically hang on until you until you can't hang on anymore. So that's 
requires some decent strength and it requires the athlete to be fresh. So where it's positioned as well in terms of programming is is key in terms of minimizing soreness and then what comes after it is key. You know, we've had discussions around making sure people aren't going to sprint the next day after doing their Nord board tests. So that's another way of um, minimizing those potential issues around that kind of soreness. So we're just going to take a very quick break in this in- hamstring injury masterclass. So coming up in part two is more from Anthony Shield talking about uh, Nordics and why they might not be as functional as um, as other exercises. But also Lachlan Wilmot from the Parramatta Eels discussing his injury prevention strategies and Matt Tabner from Everton discussing return to play protocols. But we, before we do get into part two, we just want to say a massive thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. If you want to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science and their biomathematical modelling, which is in the back end of the Fatigue Science Ready Band, and how you can manipulate people's sleep patterns uh, when crossing time zones with the use of the ready band i would encourage you to check out episode 174 where i discuss all of that and lots more with ian dunican who is a sleep expert um, who's currently living in australia so if you want to check out more about fatigue science head over to their website fatiguescience.com but also follow them on twitter at fatigue science so over to part two in this hamstring injury masterclass. Hope you enjoy. So next audio clip goes back to Tony Shield in episode 141. And Tony discusses uh, the term functional and why the Nordic may be classed as a non-functional exercise, but then also goes into a little bit of detail into Tony's reasons why he says that and some potential other terminology which may um, which may allow the Nordic to kind of fit into another category. But over to, epi- over to episode 141 with Tony, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this one. So I'm um, a bit of an uh, English language Nazi in that I, I constantly challenge people to use terms that actually have a well-defined meaning and to use those terms correctly. Now, when it comes to you know, functional exercise or functional training. I've never been able to find a really strict definition of it. And I see inconsistencies in the way that that term is used. So some people, for example, they'll criticize certain exercises for not being functional. And that's often a reason why they won't use them in their own programs. But then the same people will show you another exercise, which to my mind is absolutely equally not functional or dysfunctional as you might like to describe it. And so I just think it's predominantly a problem with the definition of it. Uh, I think that the term functional is synonymous with the term specificity. And if we talk about sports specificity, I think we can understand that we might all have a slightly different opinion on what exercises are the most specific exercises for a certain task. So let's say you have a shot putter, for example, and some people will uh, notice that most shot putters do heavy bench press. It's one of their predominant pushing exercises that they do. And of course, it is in some ways specific to shot put, but it's in some ways rather not specific. It's not posture specific. It's not velocity specific because the guys tend to lift really heavy loads. It's not laterality specific because it's two arm movements rather than just using one at a time. So there's a heap of ways in which it's not specific and there's some ways in which it is. At the end of the day, calling it non-functional is not going to stop shot putters from doing it. And I certainly, I don't use the term very much, but I do understand that, you know, most people would regard uh, lying down as something that's not particularly functional if your sport actually involves standing up. But, uh, yeah, I think that the big problem I have is that, that the lack of really strict definition, if we were to use sports-specific uh, as a term instead, it's slightly better defined, although there's a lot of circuitous definitions for sports specificity. But essentially, it, it, both terms are, t- are really referring to the extent of transfer that you can get from the training exercise into the competition. And so whether that's transfer from the gym out onto the sporting field or transfer from the training paddock out onto the the actual match pitch, 
we really, by having highly functional exercises or highly sports-specific exercises, we would hope to maximise transfer. And I think if we use each of those terms, the term transfer is something that we can understand fairly well. Um, something that transfers well will have a more significant impact on your match day performance. So I think out of all those terms, that's the one that I'd prefer to use. So the next audio clip comes back to Tony uh, from episode 141. It went around the houses in this episode, and I'd massively encourage you to check it out because listening back, it was a great episode. But we come back again to the term functional, and Tony just expands on his previous audio clip. So over again to Tony. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, and you know what? I don't use the word functional myself except to talk about it in these sorts of contexts when we're talking about how, how it's used. Um, if I was to use the term functional, I wouldn't describe the Nordic as functional. I, I think of the Nordic exercise as structural, and we'll talk about later the adaptations that we know that the Nordic causes. It causes some really positive structural changes within the muscles, which are highly likely to be involved in injury protection. Um, the I'll give you an example, or another couple of examples. We, we've got guys who will argue that the Nordics are not functional, yet I've met a couple of people who argue that it is functional. And from my personal perspective, I just try not to use the term, but I, I would tend to think that if I had to use the term, I'd say, no, Nordics aren't functional. They're not highly sports-specific. They're not sports-specific to sprinting. They don't look anything like sprinting. But we've had folks who really are critical of the Nordic and won't use Nordics, but at the same time, they'll advocate an exercise where a player lies on their back and extends their hip with their ankle held in a brace that's attached to a pulley. And so lying on your back is, you know, nowhere near... Uh, post posturally more specific than kneeling and falling forward. Um, we'll also have folk who advocate that they won't ever use Nordics, but they'll advocate a side plank. And, and this has got to be the least functional thing that you, you could do, as well as a very low <laughs> intensity exercise. But perhaps they'll advocate a side plank whilst pulling with their free arm on a pulley. And I just see them all as equally non-functional and I'm not suggesting for a minute that none of them have any value. Um, we probably need a fair bit more research on those two examples I've given. We, we certainly have a lot of research on Nordics already. But, um, yeah, I think that, that I really have a problem with the inconsistencies where those folk who use the term functional seem to, to apply it in a very sporadic manner. So this next audio clip comes from episode 150 with Matt Tabner from Everton Football Club. So in this audio clip, Matt discusses return to, return to play protocols for hamstring injuries and takes us through a nice progression through a 8 to 10 week period of benchmarks which Matt uh, makes sure that are hit when it comes to hamstring injuries and moves along that chain and uh, gives some nice detail into the kind of stuff that he's doing in them uh, 8 to 10 week period. So over to Matt Tabernet from episode 150. Yeah, yeah. I think um, obviously, first of all, obviously, after the player's injured, he would remain with the physiotherapy team for a period of time, and obviously the injury settles. And then the sort of the first port of call for us was obviously would it be obviously is is he pain is he pain free? On the sort of we've got processed through some isometric contractions. Normally, depending on what the site is type of injury, whether it be a bicep femoris or a semi mem semi tendinosis sort of injury. Uh, would de de determine what uh, degree angle we would uh, target the um, isometrics at, and obviously these are normally done in sort of uh, cluster sets. So it's a targeting of sort of a sort of starting with a submaximal contraction, working more towards a maximal voluntary contraction, sort of a cluster between anything starting from ten seconds going down to five seconds, depending on the intensity of effort, and obviously just building up some sort of time and attention. And obviously, obviously, with isometrics being minimally um, exposing the player to eccentric uh, tissue stress and muscle damage, then obviously it can build over time. And then it's starting to obviously integrate some more sort of bridging-based movements, floor-based movements, and then obviously working on different um, athletic compasses while you're focused on the injury. It's important not just to focus on the injury, in my opinion. Can we look at developing some athletic compasses and qualities in that player outside of what the injury is? 
So can we look at d components of core stability? Can we look at developing some anti-extension uh, ability, resisting rotation in different positions? Can, can we work on different qualities at the same time? And then obviously, obviously as the period goes on, we'd, we'd generally what we try and do is then use the ISO HAMS test that I talked about earlier as sort of a, a, sort of a tracker. Is it, when is it right and when is it appropriate to start to uh, expose that player to certain speeds in, on the GPS, on the external workload. Um, so obviously, do, are they returning to their previous baselines? Obviously, objective data is important in return to play. Are they returning to the objective baselines in terms of when they re uh, return to peak force on the ISO hams? And normally what we start to see is that after they quite quickly return to peak force, maybe in around 10 to 14 days after injury, and then the last things that start to... Uh, recover the um, sort of rate of force development kinetics so the the sort of time frame look at 150 milliseconds sort of the last things are starting to return in there maybe after about uh, three weeks period when obviously you can sort of um, take that outside rehabilitation onto the next step obviously the outdoor and the indoor preparation working in tandem so Progressing those players towards initially towards more strain-based exercises. So depending on say it was a proximal hamstring strain, more RDLs, single RDLs, where it'd be a, a more distal component, it may be. Obviously, everyone talks about the Nordic. Obviously, for me, I'm not a big lover of the Nordic. I think I think the Norboard is a great tool for monitoring obviously eccentric hamstring strength, but I think sometimes if using the Nordic we fail to get to those long muscle lengths where we were looking for a sort of structural change. Uh, and I think obviously a rip paper um, on exercise technique in the uh, NSCA strength and conditioning journal on the side and leg call, which I'm a big proponent of. So in this next audio clip, we have the final audio clip from Anthony Shield in episode 141. So in this clip, Tony discusses alternatives to Nordics and why the Nordic has been so popular in the research, but also what other options are there out there in the uh, in the practical environment but also what's come through in the research so over to the final audio clip from tony in episode 141 yeah yeah absolutely so uh for me uh, a really significant part of the work that we do and if you read carefully anything that matthew bourne has published uh, particularly his exercise selection paper again that's a bjsm paper from last year and the um his training study with the Nordics compared to the hip extensions. Um, we're huge advocates of hip extension movements, and that's um, something that's lost on a lot of people who, who, not a lot, but there's a few people out there who'll say that my association with the Nord board indicates that I'm biased towards Nordics. And it'll also, they'll suggest that it indicates that I'm also biased towards eccentric uh, exercise over, for example, isometric exercise. But um, I've got news for people that the Nord board can test strength eccentrically and isometrically. So that argument's totally irrelevant to me, if I, even if I'm biased by the, the, the concept of the Nord board. Um, with regard to other exercises, you know, in Matthew Bourne's studies, we've ex explored these hip-based movements predominantly because we felt initially we could get a better effect than with Nordics. So we initially, going back even five, six years ago, we had EMG stuff that we just did in the lab. And we weren't interested early on in publishing this, but we just did some EMG work and showed that the medial hamstrings were, were highly active in the uh, Nordic and that the lateral hamstrings, by contrast, were, were significantly less active. So we wanted to find out what, what means can we, how do we activate lateral hamstrings more and the reason for wanting to do that is that the lateral hamstrings or the bicep fem long heads the one that get it gets injured about 80 percent of the time when you're sprinting so we found it strange that the nordic works so well given that it was predominantly a, a medial hamstring exercise and now we know that it's predominantly a semitendinosus exercise along with bicep femoris short head and indeed um when you do a nordic and you train for 10 weeks about half of the hypertrophy you get in all of the hamstrings comes from semitendinosus changes alone. So that might be seen by many to be a reason not to do Nordics, but Eric Vitrow and Jock Shermans and colleagues have 
produced um, some nice evidence to suggest that semitendinosus use might protect bicep femoris uh, from strain. And so even if the Nordic uh, works, it, it, we've shown that it increases the lengths of the fascicles within the bicep femoris long head. And we've shown previously that that's a good thing when it comes to reducing injury rates. But we um, also now have shown that it's a very, very good exercise at increasing the size of semitendinosus. And so the protective effects of Nordics might be mediated by those adaptations and or others. There's certainly other possibilities. And recently, the, the possibility that there are changes in the collagen uh, expression at the myotendinous junction. So you basically might be swapping out some of the collagen that's less suitable and incorporating more collagen that's more injury resistant into the muscle tendon junction. So there's some work by Jacobson and colleagues from um, Denmark that has uh, shown that relatively recently. But at the end of the day, we know that lots of different exercises could stimulate these adaptations. So for example, with the hip extension exercise that we've explored quite a bit up until now, uh, it is also a very good exercise for increasing semitendinosus size. So we can tick that box in a number of different ways. We feel that you can increase, well, we've shown that you can increase bicep femoris fascicle lengths with a hip extension exercise. And we think that we can make hip extension exercise even more effective if we make it eccentric only. So if we, we sort of manage or eccentrically biased so if we were to lower a load with one leg but lift it with two, for example, I think we would get more benefit in terms of fascicle lengthening. And that's certainly something that we will have a go at at some stage in the future. We're just trying to you know, get some money for that because the, the MRI side of it's expensive. But yeah, there are a heap of other options. It's just that at the moment, they don't have the evidence base. So I can understand a strength and conditioning coach would not want to just use Nordics. It seems ridiculous to only use Nordics. And indeed, even the literature that advocates Nordics, it's no reason for a Nordic-only approach. And I don't know any of the authors of those papers who say that there should be a Nordic-only approach. Indeed, I'm quite happy to write programs and not use Nordics at all, but I just feel that they don't quite have the evidence base, so I feel like I need to use Nordics as, as a part of a program, but, but not as a whole. So a final clip of this hamstring injury masterclass, and this comes from Lachlan Wilmot, in episode 185, so pretty recently, and he talks about his injury prevention strategies over at the Parramatta Eels, but also what he's brought over from the GWS Giants in his previous role when it comes to uh, when it comes to mitigating hamstring injury risk. So thanks for tuning in. Over to the final audio clip with Lachlan, and I hope you enjoy. Hope you enjoyed the masterclass, and last but not least, Lachlan Wilmot. Yeah, it's um, <coughs> yeah. It's, in a very simple response, I don't know if it has really changed all that much because you know I've I've certainly got my my principles that um, that I believe in that I follow and and I've certainly brought that over to Parramatta um, with with the way we train a lot of our players. Um, again, that that's where I start to put my fingerprints on the strength program and and intertwine. And that's something you know we've when I arrived they had a Nord board there anyway, so that was. That was something they were used to looking at and using, um, so that was that was great for me. So it wasn't something I needed to have this huge sell on. Um, we've certainly um, brought over a little bit more of the the um, isolated hamstring work as much as we can, whether that be from a, a Nordic or razor position all the way through to just basic slide curls and stuff like that. Um, and also my philosophy around you know exposing players to high speed running as consistently as possible, and obviously Gabbett's been pushing a lot of the acute to chronic workload ratio workout now associated with sprinting as well, not just your classic, um, you know, kilometres run or RPE load per week. So there's been some great research around that. And and obviously the, the Queensland hamstring group keep pushing out more and more research um, that they've got as well. And and it's been great to see the the progression of that. And, um, you know, I've, I definitely, I wrote the article around the, the distal and proximal approach of hamstring training and still something that I believe in and I push and there's been a couple of studies that have started to show that you know the different different uh, muscle groups that are involved in the the distal aspect or the, the proximal aspect so it's been great to see those things transfer and be able to be you know more targeted with the way we do a lot of our hamstring rehab but um 
I, I would probably say that my philosophy hasn't changed at all from AFL to NRL. The implementation is going to be a little bit different simply because our NRL boys simply just don't have the, A, the volume, but the high-speed meters that they'll run in games that the AFL boys will do. Um, <clears throat> the, the NRL boys certainly don't have to sprint and then suddenly kick. Obviously, there's an occasional player that will need to, need to put a kick in on the NRL field, but unlike AFL, he's usually not running at max pace and then have to, to kick. So that's something that, um, that, that from an injury prevention standpoint, um, hamstrings are probably a little bit more of an importance in AFL. But that's not to say we haven't had hamstring issues with a lot of our players previous years. There's a couple of boys, especially our, our high-speed boys, that have suffered hamstring injuries in their career. So that's been great to, to really implement a couple of my, my principles in there and, and do the best we can to try and mitigate um, as much hamstrings as we can. We're never going to stop everything, as you know, and as every coach should know. Um, but we've, we've done really well to, to bring it in. And I think done a good job of, of bringing in the principles and philosophies of it without having this huge pendulum swing of suddenly all these NRL boys doing a whole heap of hamstring work left, right and centre. And to be honest, that'll cause more issues than not because they'll be sore, they'll be complaining and, and you end up putting too much load through them that they're not used to and, and you really do spike that that um, ratio a little bit too much. So um, I haven't changed my philosophies or principles. I've evolved a lot and, and found new ways of, of putting more loads in through isometric components, through eccentric components, but, um, but I've certainly tried to implement as much as I can that's been applicable to the NRL setting that, uh, that I've obviously developed over at the Giants. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the Hamstring Injury Masterclass with the five guys that have previously been on the podcast. So some really interesting discussion and I encourage you to check all them out and I've mentioned the numbers multiple times in this episode so hopefully you uh, take the opportunity to revisit some of the, the chats that I've had over the last couple of years with these guys on the hamstring injuries. So massive thanks to Fatigue Science, Val Performance and Forstex for sponsoring this episode today and I look forward to speaking to you in episode 197.